Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to uh, gather as a community and worship you. And just pray uh, for humility this morning and just open hearts. And, and we just give this service back to you. Thank you for all you've done. In your name, Amen. Well, first, um, I want to say thank you, because uh, as was mentioned, uh, I have been in Outer Mongolia for the last decade, and it's been a privilege, it's been an honor to be able to serve the kingdom in this really cool way, but I could not have done it without the love and support of Wyzetta. It wasn't all romance, it wasn't all roses, there were hard times in this church. You're nothing but love and support uh, for us, so thank you very much. Uh, Kevin... uh, gave me the topic, Is There Truth? Could I have a broader, more difficult topic? <laughs> so thank you, Kevin, very much. So does any of you know me, you know my personality. I like to tell you where we're going, like right up front. Um, so as by way of introduction, I'm going to tell you where we're going. The, as was mentioned, uh, I've come into contact with a lot of different worldviews. I lived in a post-socialist country, so there was the communist worldview. Anybody knows that worldview? The state is basically atheism, so I had that. The people we were ministering to were Buddhist primarily, animistic, so we had that worldview, and a lot of others. I've studied worldviews. I've met a lot of people, and as my worldview is con- in contact with a lot of different experiences, with a lot of different people, I've come to the conclusion that I think everybody's right. So I'll stand up here this morning and just tell you that I'm a universalist. Yeah? Everybody cool with that? All right. Yeah, yeah. I have to smile, right? So you know I'm joking. Obviously, that's a joke. Okay? No, just the opposite is true. I stand up here before you a true exclusivist. Okay? I know I'm 100% right 100% of the time. I know I'm going to heaven and the rest of you all... I'll put in a good word for you when I get there, okay? So, yeah, you're welcome. So we have a clip uh, this, uh, this morning uh, to introduce our topic. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there like a splinter in your mind driving you mad it is this feeling that has brought you to me do you know what I'm talking about the matrix do you want to know what it is the matrix is everywhere it is all around us even now in this very room You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. 
This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Okay, last chance. Are you guys ready? I don't have a blue or red pill this morning. I do have some green pills in my pocket. They're about a month old. They're Tic Tacs if anybody wants those. I don't have that this morning. What I do have to offer this morning is not as hard to swallow as some people make it out to be. I have a black book that offers a singular truth, that offers purpose in a world without meaning or purpose, that offers love and compassion, a world that ultimately says you are on your own. What I have this morning, what we're going to explore, what we're going to explore is meaning not just for eternity and things unseen, but for daily struggles, for daily triumphs, for daily failures, through merciless, heartbreaking sorrow. I offer this morning the answer, Jesus Christ. And this morning we'll be exploring worldviews and what people believe, how people relate and explain what they see in the world around them, reality. Last half of this century has muddied the water. It's hard to see the truth because there seems to be so much out there, but that really isn't it. It's the same choice that there's always been. Either you can make it in this world on your own or you can't and you need some help. For the last two centuries, the Christian worldview has been portrayed as pure emotionalism, as pure faith, as faith divorced from reason, and I'm here to tell you that is not the case. You have every good reason to believe. In history, in science, in philosophy, the person of Jesus Christ offers the only viable solution to the pain and suffering of life, to how I live my life, and ultimately what lies at the end of every life, death. Please don't misunderstand. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not here to do an atheism or world religion bashing this morning, because there's nothing I hate more than entering a Christian forum and not hearing both sides. And I have labored to be fair to the other side, but in the end, I have to admit then a setting like this cannot be fair in time nor in content. This morning is meant to be a summary only, and I urge you to explore on your own, to pursue and to study all the while comparing to Jesus. If done so, objectively and earnestly, rejection of Jesus will still be possible. It's part of our sin nature, a part of our rebellion. But I'm convinced it'll be one of the hardest things you'll ever have to do. Once you come face to face with Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, you will have to answer, is he liar, lunatic, or Lord? I came to him through a process of elimination. I tried everything else first, and I came to the conclusion that there's too much that points to this man, the bright morning star, the line of Judah, the only son of God. The question that's either blessed me or plagued me my entire life is, is there truth? What does this life mean? And when you ask questions of meaning and purpose, you ultimately examine your life. The question for me has always been how. How is more important than the why. The why is fairly easy. The how is harder. How do you live your life? There are some basic questions you must ask and some basic tests you must put any worldview through before you can decide on its validity. Is it logically inconsistent? Does it contradict itself? If it does, it must be false. 
Is it able to comprehend data of reality, data of all types, that which each of us glean through our conscious experience of daily life, that which is supplied by critical analysis and scientific investigation, that which is reported to us from the experience of others? If a ghost refused to disappear under investigation, our worldview must provide a place for it. If a man is resurrected from the dead, our system must explain why. If people are dying slow deaths through AIDS, starving through a famine, or children are suffering in the environment in which they are raised, our worldview must account for that, and more than that, must provide action points, it must provide solutions. To put very simply, our worldview must provide love and compassion. Basically, there are three choices, and again, this is a very general summary. Okay? Naturalism is our first choice. It's the idea that the only things that are real are comprised of what you can see, taste, touch, or hear. There is no spiritual real. There's only the physical world made up of the molecules, amoebas, and in Minnesota, a couple weeks, lots and lots of mosquitoes. This reality stems from the Enlightenment. It's the science we teach in our schools. It's a scientific method. God does not exist. It's the modern Western worldview. It includes such philosophies as existentialism, nihilism, humanism, modernism. And it's the worldview that Christians generally draw their battle lines against. Next worldview, non-naturalism. Another way of viewing reality is to say that reality is strictly, strictly non-natural. That is, the natural world that we see in reality is an illusion. It is not real. The only thing that is real is the spiritual unseen dimension. This is the Hindu idea of reality. And New Age thinking prevalent here in America follows the same concept. The last, supernaturalism. The spiritual realm, including God, is not the same as the natural world. God is creator and he's separate and he's transcendent. God is distinct from nature. This includes Christianity, Islam, Judaism. It's theism. We have three circles which reality is real. We'll begin with supernaturalism. This morning we're going to walk through my own personal faith journey, my own personal search for truth. I grew up in the church. I accepted Christ at a young age, and I had a passion for the church, for the community, but also further our mandate to seek the lost. I was involved in lots of Bible studies. I was involved in youth group leadership. But all the while, my heart was for the lost, for my friends that were on the fringe, for that group that was lonely. And I invited those people to our church consistently. And as my worldview came in contact with other worldviews and I began to understand some of their suffering and some of what they were going through and some of their questions, I began to see just the diversity of perspectives. And I began to ask some questions, and this is about junior high that I started asking these questions. My first biggest question is, why did Satan fall? What about Native Americans in hell? All the unreached people groups that never heard the name of Jesus, what happens to them when they die? These are some of the questions we're going through in this series. And the God of the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, where God commands Israel to go and conquer and wipe people out, the God of war. I had real issues of justice when I was younger. I wasn't the only one. One of my friends, 
she was a high school student, so a little bit older than me. She was going through some of the same thing. And we're going to go through a series of events of what happened in my home church. She was asking the same questions. I'll never forget one pivotal moment in my faith was a Sunday morning when she asked the Sunday school teacher, what does it mean to be a Christian? Now, maybe that Sunday school teacher at that morning didn't have his third cup of coffee and wasn't thinking clearly or didn't understand the question or something. But he looked her right in the eye and he said, that is an irrelevant question. To me at that point, and a lot of my friends when we were young, that was the only question. How do we live? And what happened in a series of weeks after that, my peers kind of followed that leader's, that adult's example, and she was basically labeled a doubter. Not happy in her face, something's wrong, so it has to be something wrong with her, something's wrong with her face, she has questions, she's a doubter, and she was shunned. And eventually she left the church. Her family was core members of the church, and it was very sad. And it took a little dent out of me, put a little dent in me. It was a couple series like that that led up to kind of the final moment for me. Still had a passion for the loss and went on a missions trip my sophomore year in high school down to Chiapas, Mexico. And it was a two-day mule ride. Maybe it was one day. I can't remember. It was a long, long time ago. But it was out in the jungle. It was way out there. And there was no running water. That was part of the reason why we were going. We were going to put a waterway in and uh, help the Chiapas Indians and then also be a light and witness and tell them about uh, Jesus. Well, you know the context. you got the context. It's jungle, and it's extreme culture. It's culture that's just in your face. It's uh, mud huts. It's, it's the works. Part of what we were going to do was we were going to stay with families. So we were going to split up. The Westerners were going to split up. We were going to go stay with families, learn their culture, be part of them, eat meals with them, and just shine. But one of our leaders, and this was actual, he was sitting on the elder board at the time, and his wife, when they got down there and they were confronted with this just kind of extreme they got weirded out. And if you've ever been around someone that's weirded out, it's just you don't know what to do with it. And our group didn't know what to do with it at that time either. And what happened was these two people that couldn't be part of the culture, they convinced the rest of our group to stay in the schoolhouse. So we created our own enclave, and we weren't part of the culture. We weren't staying with our hosts. And what I saw the next two weeks that we were there from an elder in my church and his wife, and context. They're in an extreme place. But I watched them not only withdraw, but treat our hosts with open disgust. It was a series of events that basically led me to drop the church. I'm done at that point. And I had a group of four friends at that point, they had gone through the same journey with me, and they were convinced that this was the right thing to do. And so we began kind of our own search for truth, and that's what we labeled it at that point. We were still very spiritual. We were still in touch with that realm, so we decided to go to the non-naturalism realm, Hinduism and Buddhism in particular, where the East meets the West. I asked myself, does the East have a better way? Simplicity. There's a peaceful nature and reflection that somehow, by the journey inward, I can get to the essence of all things and experience unity with the universe. That's the thought and attraction for many people, and for me, that was very appealing. And for over a century, Eastern thought has been flowing West. Hinduism, Buddhism, Eastern mysticism, the New Age movement. 
Today we're just briefly going to look at basic Eastern pantheistic monism. All these elements, all these subcategories have similarities. But we're going to look at pantheistic monism. In this worldview, God is one infinite, impersonal, ultimate reality. That is, God is the cosmos. God is all that exists. Nothing exists that is not God. That is appealing. Because to put it boldly, but I think accurately, each person is in a sense God. Fabulous. To realize one's oneness with the cosmos is to pass beyond personality. And the notion in pantheistic monism is at diametrical odds with theism. In theism, personality is the chief thing about God and the chief thing about people. You lose your identity at the end of your journey in Hinduism. And that's part of the appeal for people. For the moment, nothing truly matters. If anything that is not God appears to exist, it's my, it's illusion. It does not truly exist. In other words, anything that exists as separate and distinct object is illusion. Are you sitting there? Are you an individual? It's not our separateness that gives us a reality. It's our oneness. I heard an analogy for Buddhism that made it clear for me when I was young. So your life is a candle and your consciousness is the flame above. The whole point of something like Buddhism is to come at the end and blow it out. Nothing. But then, in a sense, everything. What happens in a state where all distinctions disappear? Here and there, now and then, illusion, reality, truth, falsity, good, evil, all disappear. It leads to nothing. And that's the point. The New Age movement has polluted this line and tried to short-circuit the process, becoming a shadow of a shadow where experience defines everything, where everything is relative. And taken to its logical conclusion, this notion is a form of nihilistic epistemology. We can only know what we experience. For me at that time, my mind, I needed a certain simple mindset of working assumptions. That there is reality out there, that I can perceive it, that I can know truth, that it is not an illusion. And no matter how difficult the perception, the reality is finally an external fact. So I took the bridge of theism from theism and ended up in naturalism. And the naturalist, this comes from the Enlightenment. Reason is the sole criterion for truth. In philosophy, it's the secular humanists. And this, as we'll get into, is a big appeal. In religion, it would be evolution, atheism. And in practice, it would be Marxist. This is modern humanity, which post-modernity was rebelling. Carl Sagan said this, The cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. That sums up the naturalist worldview. And this theory seems objective because it only considers what it can see. It's a system of cause and effect. That's the appeal. It's a closed system also. The universe exists on its own with no supernatural interference. There is no God coming down, putting his hand in to help people. There's no intervention. Ultimately, humans mean nothing in the great scheme of things. And ultimately, humans are the makers of value. It's very humanistic. Under this, we're going to go to one subcategory, existentialism, because this is where I ended up resting. 
It was very appealing to me. It's a reaction to the unsafe atmosphere post-World War I. There were the Dust Bowls. There was rampant violation of the anti-liquor law. There was the rise of National Socialism in Germany and its incredible travesty of human dignity. This was the atmosphere, and it left intellectuals ready to conclude that all is meaningless. And in the soil of such frustration, existentialism began to flower. Everything existing, everything is born without reason, prolongs itself out of weakness, and dies by chance. Yeah? You can see why this was appealing to me, yeah? Here's why it's appealing. Just wait two seconds. Where do I get meaning, okay? This is why it was appealing. My reality appeals in, appears in two forms. There's the subjective and the objective. The first, objective, the universe is a machine. The second, the subjective, my universe is in my mind. The objective world has death waiting at the end. The subjective finds meaning by recognizing the absurdity of the objective world. And the authentic person must revolt and create his or her own value. The sun is going to implode. The earth is going to grow cold. We are going to go the way of the dinosaurs. So how do I find meaning today? All that matters is here and now. I exist in this moment. No past, no future. Only now. I must live now. I must choose. I cannot be passive. I have to engage life, write, think, dialogue. And with my action, shout out to an uncaring universe that I am human and not a mere cog in the machine. You've read the existentialists. You've read what they wrote. A lot of them geniuses, yeah? But they were in their mind creating truth where they were the only measures of it. And it leads to kind of a intellectual elitism. That was the appeal. And my group of four friends and myself, we ended up here and we thought we were pretty smart. We were pretty arrogant. We had the right answer. Everybody else is kind of just struggling, but we're rebelling. We're the true, real people that have the worldview. But if you take this philosophy to its logical conclusion, it leads to nihilism. Relativism reigns. There's no hope. With every human being creating individual Values, there's no absolutes. Life has no meaning. And at the time, two of my friends took the natural step, believing that life had no meaning. My first friend drove out into the countryside Saturday night. He took some rubber hose and uh, hooked it up to the tailpipe brought it into his car, and he was gone. The second phone call I got was from my best friend Doug's parents. And they told me that he had taken a bath and slit his wrist. Suddenly, I'm not so arrogant anymore. My worldview came in clash, came in confrontation with reality in a way I couldn't ignore. I gave up on the meaning of life. I gave up on everything. I had a group of friends. I cut all ties. I'd started university at that point. I dropped out all my classes. I moved, left everything behind. 
I took a job that meant nothing to me. It was a constant battle of nothingness. I worked second shift so that while I was sleeping, the world would be up, and while the world was up, I would be sleeping. I wanted as little contact with humanity as possible. I was suffering from depression, insomnia. Those were years of my life. There was no joy in that worldview. But I continued. Eventually, I entered back into the realm of university, and I started taking physics classes again and literature classes because that's where my heart was. And basically, it was through physics, through science and literature that turned me back to the Bible. I started reading our Western literature and all the praise, all these poets that were writing about the beautiful creation and the physics class I took and the astronomy class I took and looked at the stars and looked at the creation and even something as simple as complex as the eye, I knew there was a designer. And when I read Einstein, despite the fact that he didn't want to credit the biblical God, he talked about a designer. He talked about a creator. And now I'm back. I've come full circle. If I believe that the natural world is too beautiful not to have been designed, what do I have left? There are the choices. So it was at this point I discovered Boltman. I discovered Bart. I discovered Kierkegaard, the Christian existentialists. Even though what they did ended in heresy, I respect what they tried to do because they were trying to answer a horrible atrocity where the church was silent. And they saw the church being silent when millions of people were being murdered. And they said, our faith has to matter now. We have to do something now. It can't just be this future hope. You know, I prayed the prayer. Now I'm a Christian. Now I'm done. Everything I do is stamped justified. I have the right answer. I'm right. You're wrong. You know, it can't be that. It has to be our life and other people's lives. Inaction is a sin. There's also that time where I met people of great faith and great doubt. I met people that had questions. I came to Psalm 22. And I realized in the Bible, not everything is always hunky-dory. It's okay to ask questions. David cried out, God, where are you? And what took it even further and cemented it for me was that Jesus Christ quoted Psalm 22 on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then I was okay. It's through the process. I came back to the faith, a long process. But I basically came back face-to-face with Jesus Christ. And I had to... Answer the question, is he liar, lunatic, or Lord? I discovered everything that I thought the face should have been when I was young, everything I dreamed it could be, that's what it was in the person of Jesus. Where everything else failed was when my worldview, when I was under that, when I came face to face with tragedy. Because Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, Jesus Christ was the only one was I was suffering that was able to come next to me, put his arm around me and say, George, I love you. The first It's an illusion. Your suffering is an illusion. And the second, you're on your own. Jesus came and he told me that he loved me. I was called to the life of a servant, a life of suffering and sacrifice. I could not find satisfaction in my Christianity unless it meant sacrificially giving to others, placing myself in uncomfortable situations. In the context of giving, Mark 10, 45, his life was a ransom for many. Mark 1:17 Jesus issues a radical decisive authoritative summons follow me and I will make you fishers of men 
Luke 9, 3. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What does it mean to be a Christian? Jesus had urgency. He had a passion for the lost. He talked about the kingdom is here now. The Messiah, the King of Kings, is here. Christ demands total homage and obedience. Jesus denied all human options for the challenges in life, the political maneuvering of Sadducees, the withdrawal of the Essenes, the revolution of the Zealots, the orthodoxy without orthopraxis of the Pharisees, and the fatalistic status quo of the Herodians. Our society is no different than the society Jesus came into. And I think about the death of the suffering servant. From the inception of his brief earthly ministry, Jesus deliberately moved toward the final battle at Calvary. And his death was a mystery to those around him. Nobody understood it. The disciples didn't understand it because they had the belief in the Judaistic concept of the conquering David figure that pervaded apocalyptic literature. What they missed, what everybody missed at the time, was the promise God made from the beginning. As soon as we fall, God is there and says, I'm going to send your Savior. And God was interested in not just one land, but all lands. And the Old Testament is just brimming with outreach, not just some isolated texts. And Christ's resurrection vindicated his mission. He was declared the Son of God with the power of the resurrection, and he gave me an evangelistic mandate. Prior to his death and resurrection, Christ repeatedly communicated God's concern for all people, a concern that men and women everywhere might know and be reconciled to God. Christ stressed submission to his lordship for those who reject him as well for those who claim to follow him. And the New Testament mentions his lordship 660 times. Obedience is not optional. No one claiming to have a biblical worldview, no one claiming to have a Christian worldview, no one claiming to be a follower of Christ dare excuse himself or herself from the obligation to disciple the nations. Jesus was our model. His message embraced the whole person, physical, emotional, and spiritual. This is how my life should work. Embracing those on the fringe, embracing those in pain. The people around us. One final thing, involvement with Jesus Christ and his mission will always involve suffering. You look at the first century church, you look at Paul. As they went out, they were rejected. They ended their lives as martyrs. Jesus himself was ridiculed, rejected, and crucified. The Gospel of Mark calls us to pattern our lives after Christ. Servanthood is either an attitude that pervades all life or has no impact at all on a person. It's got to be all or nothing. And the way that I've seen it, it's a life of humility, sacrifice, and compassion. This is how I've answered my original question. For me, this is what it means to be a Christian. I would define myself as a Christian existentialist. I believe Jesus Christ, I believe his mandate, and I believe that the today matters. Only submission to the Holy Spirit produces such a life. And what have I learned about how to live? How does the world the biblical worldview affect how I live today? I think back to my history. Christians fall. They fail. I fall. I fail. I think the key is to learn from my mistakes. The smallest action or the most trivial word 
can influence someone for Christ or just the opposite. Turn them away. That's why my faith has to mean something today. It has to be part of my life all the time. There's a tension. But the tension and the question are good. If I'm a universalist, if I'm an exclusivist, I've automatically disqualified myself from the dialogue. Nobody is going to listen or want to talk with me. Finding my voice that does not compromise my biblical worldview, but is always intelligent, humble, and compassionate in a way that helps me win others for Christ. That's my pursuit. I've learned one thing. If I am a servant first, the other side will talk to me regardless of how different our views are. Servant first. It's not us against them. It's us for them. There's such great hope in our risen Lord. There's hope in our biblical worldview. There's language of feast, of banquet, when we are reunited with Christ. Spreading to the invitation as many as I can, regardless of my circumstance, regardless of my context, where I am. That's my mandate. Thank you very much.